Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for the rain and how it nourishes and keeps things green. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together today to learn more about finances, Lord, and how we can be good stewards of these finances by being educated in financial matters. Lord, we pray you'd bless our class today, help us to have a great discussion, and Lord, to uh, learn a lot. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we are at the Financing Yourself class. Come right on in, come right on in. Today, the topic we're going to talk about is called Turning Drops into an Ocean. Clearly, we're going to be talking about investments and how to grow our money. Let's take a quick recap of what we looked at yesterday. Yesterday, we talked about what stewardship is and why it's important in personal finances. Remember I said that planning out a five-session class, I stuck it right in the middle because I personally thought that stewardship is, should be right in the middle of our finances. So we put it right in the middle of our course. We talked about organizational stewardship. We talked about the, how the Michigan Conference and the World Church are involved and how our tithes and our offerings flow up and down and what they help to cover, what they pay for. We talked about the Seventh-day Adventist church structure. We talked about everything, every way from the local church right on up to the world church. We talked about tithe uses and flow across the various different entities. And we also made sure we talked about that good financial plans incorporate stewardship plans for God's resources. Well, today we're going to talk, we're going to get right into it. This is one of my most favorite topics in personal finance. And you look at me and you're like, why would you care? You don't even look like you're close to retirement age. Because I'm a nerd and these are the types of things I do. We like to plan, we like to analyze, and so this is a fun topic for me. Um, it's also a topic because I personally really, really enjoy handling money. I enjoy investing money. I enjoy managing it. And so um, sometimes it's important to know where things came from. And retirement is one of those things. Where did it come from? We're going to take a look at that and um, the importance of it and maybe the not importance of it. So let's go ahead and we'll get started. Retirement facts in America. U.S. News 2012 report. One in six older Americans live below the poverty line. One in six. Working to retire ratio is five to one. It'll be three to one by 2050 if time should last. 40 million senior citizens today, there'll be 89 million of them in 2050. There's only 236 million people in America. The cost of assisted living is now $3,300 per month. Americans age 55 and older account for 20% of bankruptcies in America today. 20%. Since the financial crisis, it means that um, we've actually had it, we've seen an increase in savings, about a 4.3% savings increase, which is good. So a terrible situation caught a lot of people's attention, right? 35% don't contribute to retirement accounts, though. It's a third, a third of America. Age discrimination is always on the rise in the workplace, too, right? Have you ever heard some of these statistics before? You ever hear it on the news? Yeah. Well, let's dig in. Let's get a little bit deeper here. Where did retirement come from? Does anybody know where this concept of retirement even came from? Where did it come from? 
I'm glad nobody else knew because I didn't know either. This is something that I had to really dig into because I'm like, you know, we all we always hear about planning for it. We always hear about you need to do this, you need to save this, you need to save that, you need to get ready for this. This age here, you need to be ready for that. But where did this thing even come from that we're all working so hard to get to? Well, in 13 BC, Roman Emperor Augustus began paying pensions to Roman legionnaires for serving 20 years. This is the first known instance in history of a pension, of somebody actually retiring. Okay? So 2,000 years ago, we have really our first instance of a retirement. Now I want to ask you something. Do you think that if you, do you think there were a lot of people that made it 20 years in the Roman service? So do you think there were a lot of people drawing on pensions in the Roman government? Probably not, right? I mean, I can't even imagine serving 20 years and making it, right? 16th century European countries offered pensions to their troops. Look at this. We've gone hundreds of years before we see even the next instance of it, right? But again, it's the same concept. It was offered to the military. 1684, the first civilian from the London Port Authority, which is basically bridges and tunnels types of things, was offered a pension. Get this. This is how it worked, though. He was paid half of his working income, and it was deducted from the pay of his replacement. <laughs> cool, right? Wouldn't you love to be the replacement? <laughs> that just happened to Claudius he was alive when he died. So my, 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 my. probably hoping he's going to die. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Interesting. So, 1684 is where we finally move into this first development type of a thing. Interesting, though, that the pay for, from the replacement paid for the retiree, it sounds an awful lot like Social Security kind of does today, right? Though we're not paying one-to-one, -one, we are paying a percentage. In 1850, half of Americans worked on a farm. 1850. We had someone in here afterwards that was telling me they live in a house that was built in 1860, and I don't see her now. 1860, so this is, we're getting pretty modern here. 78% of men worked past age 65. 80% of them. In 1850, they operated under that concept of work until you die or until you can't work anymore, right? The family supported those who couldn't work any longer. There wasn't a pension. There wasn't, you know, the stock market was new, but nobody relied on it. When you couldn't work anymore, your family took care of you, right? The average life expectancy was only 38 years old. So put that in perspective now to the fact that the average life expectancy is only 38, and 80% of men were still working past 65. Was anybody really retiring? Less than 4% of Americans were actually over the age of 60. Half of Americans were under the age of 20. <laughs> The Industrial Revolution comes around, late 1800s. Corporate America starts demanding efficiency now. Now we have stockholders, and they want returns. They, you better be efficient if your stock price is ever going to go up. They needed a tool to replace older, less efficient workers with younger workers. See, now we have the mills, we have the factories. It's taking muscle to move these machinery around. 
Older workers are no longer able to keep up with the newer and faster machinery, and they slow down production. I know some people are like, no, I would never slow down production. Come on, we all know it's true, you know. You can't do what an 18-year-old can do. Only 20% of the population is still in the farming business now. Moving to the cities, moving to the factories. Urban workers no longer have the family support in the old age, right? They left them in the farms. <laughs> 1920s rolled around. Mandatory retirement with small pensions begin to creep in. Solves the efficiency problem, right? And it clears consciences. Well, let's set something aside for these older folks so they'll mosey on. We'll get them out of the workforce. We'll give them a little something to go. That'll make them happy, right? And then we can get those young people in here working. It was better to get a small pension than to get, just get pushed out of a job, right? We didn't have age discrimination laws yet. Nothing like that. So you're looking at it, is it better to get canned altogether or to take a little bit of something and step aside? See, culture starts changing. Great Depression hits, 1930s. We're less than 100 years out now. Extreme unemployment, right? Extreme unemployment sets in. Social Security Act of 1935 passes. It's meant to be an economic stimulus to remove older workers from the workforce, okay? We need the efficiency. Corporate America is teamed up with who? The government, they're helping, right? We need to get these workers out so we can get more efficient so our stock price can go up. You spend the benefit money on consumption. Here's the win-win. You know, businesses are lobbying government. They're saying, let's get this thing in place. We'll give them some money. And then what are the, what are the older folks going to do with it when they retire? They're going to spend it back on consumption, and it's going to complete this nice big circle of money always churning. Post-World War II, 1940s, retirement begins to look upon, begin looked upon as desirable, right? See those uh, welcome to fabulous Las Vegas, sunny Florida, all these places that are attracting people now, right? World War, II be, uh, World War II employers begin to offer fringe benefits. This is where we start seeing the pension pop up. We start seeing health insurance pop up. Insurance companies get on board to start making money, right? There's always somebody there to make money when times are changing, right? Easy street. The golden years, these are where these terms start coming from, right? The culture starts changing to let people think that not only is it okay for you to be old, but it's good to leave the workforce. Enjoy those golden years. It's the American dream. You ever heard of retirement as the American dream? Two things, right? Owning a house and retiring, the American dream. Retirement is a fairly recent cultural phenomenon. It really is. If you think about it, we have 6,000 years of biblical history, okay? In 100 years of it, we've had this retirement concept as we know it today. Only 1.6% of our world time has ever even seen retirement as we know it today. It's new, we don't, but we've never really stopped to think about where did it come from? I'd like to read a Bible text with you. If you brought your Bible, I invite you to get it out. We're going to take a look at Luke chapter 12. We have it up here on the screen too. Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. Luke 12, 16 to 21. 
Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. This is Jesus talking. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? He's got so much stuff, he doesn't know what to do with it. So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, can you picture him saying it? Soul, you have so many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What do you think? Good story? Was the rich man trying to retire? <laughs> yeah. He's trying to stop working. Faith and Finance, a book right here, published by the North American Division, page 111. It has been stated by some observers that to retire at age 65 or earlier to a life of ease is the devil's alternative to heaven. If a person is quitting work to spend his accumulated assets on himself. What do you think? I wonder how old the person that wrote that is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can tell you the main person contributing to this book is retired now. Yep. It's, it's be it, the, the, the concept to a life of ease is a key phrase there. You know, I'm looking, I'm, I'm, I want to retire, I'm looking forward to retirement, but not to stop working. So it's like, I want to work, but tired of driving. How is retirement pitched in the news to us all the time, though? Yeah. Traveling. Traveling, vacation. I, my, my favorite's the one where it must be Fiji or something like that, and they're sitting up on the chair and, you know, not doing anything. Just enjoying the sun, being alone, no grind. No office, no work. Yeah. I remind myself that uh, if I'm if I'm looking forward to not working, I need to be remembering this new disease called sitting disease. <laughs> sitting disease. Yeah. <laughs> People die prematurely. Yeah. From doing nothing, right? The, the average, uh, the average age past retirement in General Motors. 13 months is the average retirement age after someone retires from general gym. I don't know if that's the latest number, but that was, you know, average, yeah, average age. There's a lot of people that are die very quickly. Yeah, when you disengage from, your, from, from life, it doesn't work, does it? Let's take a look at a couple of biblical retirements. You know, I'm always, this is why I told you I'm a, it's a topic I find so interesting so, you know, I've gone, I've researched it, I see where it comes from now, I see how it's been ingrained in our culture. But so what does the Bible have to say about retirement? And how did people used to retire in the Bible, right? How did Adam retire in the Bible? How long did he live? Does the Bible say he was old, feeble, and frail when he died? No. Worked right to the end, right? What about Noah? How old was Noah when he was building the ark? <laughs> <coughs> yeah yeah hundreds of years old still working hard 
and preaching too. Did he ever ride off into the sunset? No. What about Enoch? Here's a real fun retirement. What happened to him? He was taken by God, right? Did he retire on this earth? Nope. What about Elijah? These are our Bible greats. So we're looking at Bible greats retirements right now. What did Elijah do? Taken by God. What about Moses? Moses was in such good shape that he walked up the mount himself and died, right? What about John the Baptist? Was he old? He was young. He was beheaded, right? What about the apostles? Most of them are martyred, right? Here's our Bible greats. How did all of them retire? They were all in active service for the Lord, weren't they? Right to the end, right to the end. Let's take a look here. Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 21. Let's flip back to Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 21. We read this yesterday. We'll read it again today. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So should we be pursuing the multi-million dollar retirement accounts? Adventist Home. Got this book right here too. One of my most favorites. You might today have had a capital of means to use in case of emergency and to aid the cause of God if you had economized as you should. Every week a portion of your wages should be reserved and in no case touched unless suffering actual want or to render back to the giver in offerings to God. So, now we have these conflict. It feels like it's almost a conflicting opinion, right? We have guidance saying you should be storing up something. But is this guidance saying we should be storing up endlessly? That we should be hoarding so that we're ready for this great day of ease? No, not at all. But we should be preparing for a day when we can no longer work, right? Same book. The means you have earned has not been wisely and economically expended so as to leave a margin should you be sick and your family deprived of the means you bring to sustain them. Your family should have something to rely upon if you should be brought into straightened places. You know what this is sounding like to me is retirement is not sounding like something where we should just stop what we're doing altogether, kick it up. Retirement to me is sounding a lot more like an encore career, right? An encore career for the Lord. <laughs> Maybe we've been so blessed that we don't necessarily need to work for an income, but we should be doing something for the Lord, right? Yep, absolutely. Fourth commandment says, Six days shalt thou labor. Yeah. There's no part about until you reach eight. Right. <laughs> yeah. For in six days you shall labor until you hit age 65 and can draw on Social Security, right? Seven, age 70 if you want to wait until, you know, full retirement age. Every week you should lay up 
buying some secure place, five or $10, this was written in the early 1900s, disclaimer here on five or $10, not to be used up unless in case of sickness. With economy, you, play, you may place something at interest. With wise management, you can save something after paying your debts. So we don't live in the day anymore where we, have the, where we live on the farm. We don't live in the day where your kids can really take care of you anymore. Can you? Do we? Not really. They have to go to work, right? That's the day that we live in, the day and age we live in. It's not the 1850s anymore. So it's wise, and the counsel we have is that we should be storing up something so that we can take care of ourselves when it comes time when we can't do that anymore, right? And having something set aside that can help us with that. What should we do? What are we to do about all this? What are your thoughts? Should we never retire? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that I think that you should stay busy if you retire. Um, so many people, you know, they feel that they're not useful and then they die, really. It's mm -hmm. sad. You have to have a purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it helps me to, to define retirement. To me, if, if retirement means to choose to stop working when I'm old, even though I'm able to keep working, that doesn't seem difficult to me. Yeah. I think that's God's plan. Right. To kick back and sit in a rocking chair. Right. To go buy the $1,000 lazy boy. And... Well, I make comment to that. Because sometimes society people may want to work. Mm -hmm. They are physically capable of working, but we do have this kind of prejudice that, you know, hey, you know, they're not going to hire you. Yeah. You're willing to go and produce, but they don't want to hire you mm -hmm. because they have that age stigma. Yeah. Thinking that you might not be as productive as a younger. Thinking that maybe there's an age stigma out there and places don't want to hire older workers, right? Sometimes, yeah. I think it's realistic they're going to retire from our jobs at some point, but it frees up more time for us to do the Lord's work. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I think if we have that kind of a mindset where we're saying, you know, we're going to retire from a job where we're just seeking to pay bills, and we have enough now the Lord's blessed us, and now it's time to start that encore career for the Lord, right? So here's my plug. Anyone that's retired, um, there's all sorts of stuff to do in your church, right? If you're retired, you should be like the leader at the next evangelistic series, right? Definitely serious help. I'm sure your vacation Bible school could use help, right? That's only five days, so you still have a day left over, right? <laughs> There's all sorts of things to do. You can work at camp meeting. You can work at Camp Asable. We have a greenhouse. There's endless amounts of things we can do for the Lord's work, right? Let's go back to the Dave Ramsey's seven baby steps that we've been talking about all week, okay? Step one was what? Starting that $1,000 emergency fund, right? We've talked about that. We've talked about that. We talked about paying off all debt. We talked about that on Tuesday using the debt snowball. We talked about building up three to six months of expenses and savings. Why? So that we're prepared in case a job loss comes, right? Or something really mammoth, a major medical problem. Step four. Investing 15% of household income into Roth IRAs and pre-tax retirement. Is 15% a lot? For some of us, right? Big size. <laughs> What's that? Not if all your debt is gone. All right, not if all your debt is gone. It's interesting that uh, 
people have no problem giving 15% to their retirement. But when you start talk about giving 15% to God, then all of a sudden that's a lot of money. Yeah. It's a big number. It's a, we need to have a mind shift. Yep. Because it's really more important to have the cause of Christ go forward so we can go home. While we're working, yeah. Instead while we're able. Storing up for our own right. well-being. And this is the re you know this is a recommendation. Fifteen percent from Dave Ramsey. Other people say ten. Some people say you might not have anything if your employer is putting something into an account for you. If you have a pension already, so um, it's just kind of meant to be a kind of like a just a base level marker, really. Well, and that's all. Yeah. Yeah. That's all being said because we've already talked about budgeting. Yeah. It's all part of that, and the yep. first thing on that list, right, is ties it off. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, putting first thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Being yep. Being out of debt, being in a place where we're making sure that we're already exercising systematic benevolence. Remember that was our $20 phrase from yesterday. Systematic benevolence. Step 5, college funding for the children. Why do you think college funding for the children would come after setting money aside for retirement? Yeah. I think just the kids for Right. Yeah. When you get old and you can't work anymore, does a college education for your kid pay for that? <laughs> maybe if you, uh, maybe if they're doctors, right? And they're willing to help out. But we've already seen culturally that the kids aren't helping parents anymore. So you'd be relying on an old mindset that's not necessarily working anymore. Paying off the home early, and then building wealth and giving like crazy. So let's take a look at this investing. 15% of household income. We're going to talk about some investment terms. And if you have questions, feel free to just interrupt and ask away because I know that this is a, a topic that has a lot of, what is this? What is that? How does that work? What is that? And I will do my best to help answer those questions for you. We can invest in cash, right? Just a bank account. We can invest in money market funds. Do you know what a money market fund is? You've heard of it before. Do you know what it is? Yes. A money market fund, we equate that to being the same thing as cash, but it's not cash. It's a fund where we're putting our money in with a bunch of other people's money, and then the fund manager is going and they're buying very short-term debt, okay? Real short-term debt, stuff that's 30 days or less usually, okay? So the government actually issues debt that, you know, they say, all right, give me a million dollars, I'm going to borrow it from you for 30 days, and I'm going to pay you 0.001%. That's why money market funds don't pay a whole lot either. There's very little risk, right? Bonds. What's a bond? Government bonds. <laughs> government bonds? So a government bond is where the government says, I need to borrow money for 30 years. Give me a million dollars and I'm going to pay you 2%. I'm serious. That's what's about it's paying right now. Maybe it's three or four. Maybe three, but it's not much. In uh, Japan, I think they're paying like Germany, the German... The German Bund, I think, is paying like 2% on a 50-year bond right now. You can also have corporate bonds, right? You can have corporate bonds. AT&T says, you know, we need to do a big infrastructure upgrade. Uh, we're going to sell our bonds. We're going to pay you 5% because we're not the government. We're a little bit more risky, so we're going to pay a little bit better. Give us your million dollars. We're going to pay you 5% for 20 years, 15 years, whatever the term of the bond is, okay? Stocks. What's a stock? Buying shares of Buying shares of a company. What's a share? What does that mean? Owner. Buying a piece of the company. What does that mean? An owner. It means you're an owner. 
you're buying an ownership interest in the company. That's all stock is. It's just a means that you represent, you know, if the company has a thousand shares of stock, okay, issued, and you buy a hundred of them, how much of the company do you own? 10%. You don't own 10% of the company. So you'd have 10% of the stake in the profits, 10% of the stake in the losses. Totally. So what happens if there's 10, you know, 100 million shares and you own 100 shares? How much of the company do you own? Very, very, very little. Nobody really cares about what you say, right? <laughs> yeah? Is there like a standard to how many shares that a company can sell of itself? The question is, is there a standard of how many shares of the company can sell of itself, right? Nope. Here's a, here's a real fun thing. Suppose there's a, uh, a thousand shares outstanding and you own those hundreds, so you own how much percent of the company? Ten. Now let's suppose company needs to raise capital. They need to bring money in. They want to grow. They issue another thousand shares. It gets bought up, not by you. How much do you now own of the company? Five percent. So that works. They bring money in, and the concept is they're going to bring that money in, and they're going to invest it, and they're going to make your 5% much more worthwhile now because the company's going to be worth more, hopefully, when they make their investment. That's the risk that comes with owning a business, right? The investment might not pay off. Can they? Yeah. I'm sorry. Can they actually do, they actually do that? Oh, yeah, they do it all the time. Yeah. I, well, I, know they, I know they split shares. Oh, yeah. They issue, they split, they buy back. Yeah, whole nine yards. Apple is a real big company that's been a real big fan lately of buying shares back. Okay, same concept now. 2,000 shares outstanding, you own the 100 shares, right? So you have 5%, right? Apple has so much money. Actually, this is real. They have more money than any company in the world, basically, other than um, the state-owned company in Saudi Arabia for their oil company. They bring in so much money from iPhones, iPads, Macs, MacPad Pro, blah, 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 that they have billions of dollars. They don't even know what to do with it to make the shareholders more valuable. So what do they do? They go into the open market and they buy shares back. So what's that going to do to the your price of your shares? Increase. No, there's less of it out there now. Your ownership goes up. It now makes your shares more valuable, right? So when it comes to stocks, is there any ethical um, principles we should be looking at when it comes to like sin stocks and things like that? It's a good point. Uh, Joel has asked, is there anything we should be looking at when it comes to stock regarding sin stocks? Have you ever heard of a sin stock before? Can you name a company that would be considered a sin stock? Philip Morris. Philip Morris, Budweiser's. Yeah, I don't know if you can buy, I don't know if, is Philip Morris a stock? It might be called, um, I can't remember the name of them now. But yeah, same concept, InBev, I think InBev might be Budweiser, something like that. Um, yeah. So should we as Christians be buying stock and trying to make profits off of a company that is going completely contrary to something that we would see listed right on our baptismal certificate, right? No, probably not. Definitely not. Yeah. Well, I apologize. Are you going to ask about mutual fund? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. I know you're getting mutual fund. No, you're, I know you're going to get to that. We're, yeah, we're headed there. Right. I'm sorry. Um, but mutual funds are multiple companies, and they are. And there's, there may be a company 
Let's talk about them in just a minute, okay? We'll, 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 we'll talk about that in just a second. Any other questions on stocks then while we're at it? So would you not buy a stock in Myers then? Well, technically you can't buy stock in Meyer well, I mean, because I mean, they're a private company, but... <laughs> would you buy stock in Walmart then? It's your question. Would you ever buy, be able to buy gas in America if you didn't want to support a gas station? Because every gas station sells what? <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep moving. Alternative investments. So we've seen cash, money markets, bonds, stocks, alternative investments. They're called alternative investments just because they're not as mainstream in the financial markets. It includes things like commodities, like gold, silver, futures contracts, where you're saying you'll buy it in the future at a certain price. If that really happens, it might not. That's why there's risk involved. Real estate, farmland, rental property. Right? Rental properties are usually really, they've really proven to be good investments for people. But what's the problem with a rental property of getting into it? They're a nightmare. They're a nightmare? I'm thinking more dollars. They usually cost a lot, right? If you want to buy cash for a rental property, you might have to shell out fifty dollars to $150,000 of cash to buy the single investment. You want to buy something in a, like a mutual fund or a stock, you know, you can buy Apple for $101 a share, much less, much easier to afford. That's why they're more common. Annuities, annuities are a completely different type of investment, similar but different. Basically, you have $100,000, you turn it over to an insurance company, or you could turn it over to a not-for-profit, and they will in turn pay you a, an amount every single month for a set amount of time, whatever you guys agree on in the contract of the annuity. Five years, 10 years, the rest of your life, maybe you die, then it keeps going on to your spouse. That's what it is. They can sometimes be very, very expensive. That's why a lot of, that's why they're not quite as common as I think they used to be. Insurance can, uh, can be considered an investment in some standards. Sometimes insurance is sold with an investment product mixed in with it, where it's gonna give you 3% for so long. Again, things you gotta look at is fees though on those things, you know. It can be very expensive. Let's take a look at mutual funds, okay? Because this is the most common way that Americans buy stocks and bonds today, okay? Why would we buy a mutual fund? Well, this is actually a, it's actually a funny thing. It's actually a survey. It's a piece of pie. What's your three favorite, most favorite types of pie? And then people you know, responded to it. But I thought that the picture was actually really good for what we're talking about. A mutual fund is really just a pie, okay? So let's pretend that key lime here. Let, let's say Apple is actually Apple, the company. Okay, now it looks like I know what I was doing when I picked the picture, right? Apple is Apple, okay? So we have a pie, and we say, all right, maybe our pie is uh, $10,000 that we're willing to invest, okay, into the mutual fund. So of our $10,000 pie, we're going to put 47% in Apple. So how much of our $10,000 would be invested in the company Apple? 4700 okay? Not all of it, right? Then we can move on to pumpkin. Let's suppose pumpkin, let's, let's orange, let's say it's AT&T, okay? Cell phone carrier, landlines. So we put some money in AT&T. We move down here to chocolate cream. And we say, all right, well, let's put some money into, what company you want? General Motors. Let's get a car company in the mix. Let's move over here to Cherry. Let's buy some Bank of America. Probably good to have some banking in here, right? Let's move on to Apple Crumb. Let's buy some General Electric, right? 
yeah, they make turbines, they make things for planes, that's important, you know, that's good. Move over here to Pecan, let's buy something else, what should we buy next? Let's buy Johnson Johnson, they've been around forever, probably going to be around a long time, they keep making all sorts of these good healthcare things, we're all getting older, we're all going to need their stuff, right? Let's move over here to Lemon Meringue, who should we buy next? Filling up our pie. Anyone? Consumers energy. Let's buy some consumers energy. You know, we're going to have to heat our house forever. Well, let's buy them. They're a public company. Let's move over here to Key Lime. We're getting down. See how this works? So now let's suppose that uh, we were wrong. Consumers energy bites the dust. Didn't work out. Economic collapse came, blew them away. Did we lose our full $10,000 investment? No. We only lost a small little percent. Maybe we lost, you know, maybe we had 10 stocks in our pie. Maybe we lost 10%. Would you rather lose 1,000 or 10,000 on a gamble? 1,000, right? So this is what's called diversification. You ever heard that word? It's another $10 word. You were diversifying our investment portfolio. We're buying all sorts of different things with it. And that's what a mutual fund does. Now, this is simple, and most mutual funds don't only have 10 stocks in them. They'll have hundreds. Some of them will have thousands of stocks in them, okay? You can have bond mutual funds where it can invest in domestic, international, municipal. Do you know what municipal bonds are? <coughs> Governments. Yeah, yeah, cities, townships, local governments usually, states. These are municipal bonds, okay? Corporate bonds, we talked about, that's AT&T, that's Verizon, that's Walmart. Those are the, you know, these are the big companies. If you don't like any of that, you can buy an international bond fund. Maybe you want to invest in companies that are overseas. Uh, Honda, Toyota, those are companies domiciled in Japan, overseas. Stocks. Now we can have all sorts of different stocks too. You ever heard of all the nice terms for this? You can have large cap, mid cap, small cap, international, REITs, and specialty. You blown away yet? There's, there's no end of the amount of stuff we can buy. Large cap, what do you think a large cap stock fund would look like? Huh? Large companies, right? The term tells it. The cap says large capitalization, meaning they have a huge portion of the market. That's what capitalization means. This is your Walmart. They have a large percentage of the retail market, right? This is your Verizon. They have a huge portion of the cell phone market. Yeah? Is there a difference between just taking 10,000 and just picking random stock that you like versus filling like a mutual fund where you put 10,000 into it? The question, is there a difference between picking 10 stocks you really like and buying the 10 stocks or buying a mutual fund? What do you think? Why is there a difference? Okay, so the mutual fund, what it does is it's taking everybody's money. So we all, let's all say we all decide to invest $1,000 together, okay? And we'll say our pie up here is our mutual fund, okay? You give it to me to manage, okay? So I'll be the manager on the, the fund. You'll give me what we got in here. We probably would put in about, what? $28,000 probably into our mutual fund. We'd go and we'd buy all the different stocks that we talked about, okay? And we would all own a percentage of the mutual fund now, okay? Does that make sense? So, 
is there, the question is, is there a difference if you just went and bought them all yourself? You'd be investing, you'd only have your own money, you wouldn't be in someone else's pool. That's really the only difference. But yes, you could go out, you could buy the individual stocks, and you could mimic any mutual fund you wanted to. It'd probably be very difficult, and it would probably cost them a lot of money because you're going to have to pay for each trade and transaction whenever you buy and whenever you sell. And when the portfolio gets out of balance, you're going to have to sell and pay fees on that. And that's why most people stick with a mutual fund because it's much easier and it costs less because everybody's doing it, right? Mid-cap funds. What would a mid-cap fund look like? These are your middle market companies. These are the ones we don't hear of as often. They oftentimes have experienced good growth and they're still growing. Okay? So my question is, is Walmart really still just knocking down doors, growing like crazy? Is Microsoft? Not really. They've kind of saturated the market, right? Now they just generate a bunch of cash because they have good products. So their stock prices probably aren't going to go crazy. But a mid-cap company, they're still growing, right? Small cap, a lot of times these are the companies that are very small. They have the most potential to grow the most, right? They're newer usually. They also have the most potential to do what? Fail. <laughs> so they're also they're considered some of the most risky. International stocks. Again, same concept. You could have international, large cap, mid cap, small cap, but most international funds are just sold as that today, international funds, and they have large, mid, and everything mixed in with them. Okay? These are the companies that aren't listed in the U.S. These are your Hondas, your Toyotas, Nestle. Uh, probably not Nestle. I think Nestle's a private company. But, um, yeah, that, that's it, them. Airbus, they, you know, Boeing's competitor. They're out of France. What is REIT? Sorry. Missed it. REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust. It's a real estate investment trust. So what they do, what a real estate investment trust is, is it looks and it smells just like a stock. And what it usually is, is it's a trust, and you're buying shares in the trust just like it's a company. And that trust takes your money, and they invest in different real estate ventures. This is where your um, a lot of um, big company storage units that you would store stuff at. Um, that would be real, like a real estate type of company. Malls, a, a real estate investment trust would own a lot of shares in mall properties, uh, commercial properties, healthcare facilities, and they'll either take a full ownership interest in the actual facility or they'll take a, a debt interest, meaning they'll issue those companies debt and they're going to try and get money back in exchange. What people like about real estate investment trusts is it usually has good income coming in, so it has a higher yield, so you'll be getting 5% on it possibly. But it's sector specific, meaning it's only really tied up in real estate, so you have more risk. Yeah? Who do you talk to about that? About REIT. REIT? Oh, yeah. You could talk to your personal financial planner. You can buy them open market. Oh, I think pretty much, I think any major brokerage company offers some sort of a real estate investment trust fund, whether it be Vanguard, Schwab. JP Morgan, um, yeah, you can buy them. A lot of people like REITs because they think it's a, an alternative to actually buying real estate in general. So you're not going to be the landlord, you're just going to own a share in it. Specialty funds, meaning maybe they're just focused on one thing. A lot of specialty funds nowadays are focused on just the oil market. Okay, They'll just buy companies that, that work in the oil industries. 
or they'll work just in the healthcare industries. So it's a, it's a bet now that that industry is really going to have better growth than the rest of the market. Load versus no load. Have you ever heard these terms before with a mutual fund? Load versus no load. Does anyone know the difference? Can you explain it? What's a load fund? Sales tax. You go in, you pay yep. an extra amount. Yep. It's, 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 like, it's like a sales tax. So to get into the mutual fund, the mutual fund will say, all right, you're going to invest your $1,000. If you want to own these shares, there's a charge to get in, 5.5%. You pay it right away out of the $1,000. So how much are you actually investing then? 9,450, 9, right? Did I do the math right? Yeah, I'm pretty close. <laughs> so that's what you'd be investing. No load funds, they don't do that. And now I'm not going to get into the arguments on which one's better, which one's not better. Usually a load fund is a, a managed fund, meaning you actually have somebody, like when we talked about in our situation, you all give me your money and I'm going to manage it. Well, am I going to do it for free because I just love everybody so much? No, I'm going to ask for a fee out of you. So I might get paid that part of that commission, that sales load fee, or there might be an ongoing fee, which every mutual fund has an ongoing annual expense fee. Usually a managed fund can run anywhere between 0.5% up to 1.5-2%. The counter to that is an index fund. Has everybody fallen asleep yet? I told you there'd be a lot of terms here today, right? An index fund. An index fund is basically saying, look, I don't think the manager can do that good of a job. I don't think they're going to beat the market because really that's what we're paying for, right? We want the manager to put something together better than what we can come up with, right? I don't think they can do it. I would just rather just have them buy everything out in the market. Just buy it all. And that way when I turn on the news and I hear that the Dow Jones went up 2%, I'll know that my, my portfolio went up 2% today too. That's what an index fund is. It just tracks an index, and an index is something like the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500, the NASDAQ. We've heard those terms before, right? So all it's doing is it's just buying all the stocks that those indexes are tracking in the same exact proportions, and then that's what you're getting in your portfolio. So the S&P 500, what does the 500 stand for? 500 stocks. There's 500 stocks in the Standard & Poor's 500. That's what the index is looking at, the largest 500 stocks in America. So if you buy an S&P 500 index fund, you're buying all 500 shares in that, in the proportions. If you want to just, they, they make these two, they make a, the Dow, a Dow Jones fund. The Dow only has 30 stocks in it. You just buy those 30 stocks in that fund, and that would be it. So if the Dow goes up a percent, you don't even got to look at your portfolio to know that you went up a percent today. Okay? Usually the fees are much, much lower on an index fund. I mean, I'm talking maybe five basis points. That means 0.05%. So a lot of people get real interested in index funds. Tax sheltered versus non-tax sheltered. There's so much to learn about investments. This is why it's so cool, right? No one's snoring yet, that's good. So you have a 401k, a 403b, 457. What do all these mean? They sound so tricky and complicated, right? You wanna know the secret about what 401k means? It's just a section in the IRS tax code. It's just section 401, subsection K. That's how it gets its name. Pretty clever, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, now the K doesn't mean thousands, so it doesn't mean you have to invest $401,000 to have a 401k. 403B, so a 401k is just the IRS subsection internal revenue code 
that is used by a for-profit entity for their employees to invest through, okay? It's for a business. A 403B is just the IRS subsection and subsection for a not-for-profit. A 457 is just the IRS section for usually a governmental entity, meaning you work for a governmental entity. A lot of times that can be a school, it can be a municipality, it can be a township, it can be a state, 457. 457s can also be used in not-for-profits and for-profits. It's not as common, but it is possible. Okay? Sometimes you can get both, but that's generally what they're used for. Roth IRA. What does Roth mean? What is Roth? Isn't that a weird word? Roth. It must stand for something, right? It's just the senator's name who sponsored the bill for the, for the, for the plan. That's just his last name, Roth. That's it. Wish I would have invented it so everyone would have gone around calling the investment the Allen IRA, but <laughs> anyways, you have a Roth IRA and a traditional IRA. A Roth IRA means you get your paycheck, everything's normal, hunky-dory, you get your money, right? Okay. Then you go around and you invest some money with that money, okay? You've already paid all your taxes on it, so now you invest it, okay? What's cool about a Roth IRA is that you've already paid the tax on the income, you put it in the Roth IRA, and the government is never going to tax it again as long as it grows. This is why Roth IRAs are very, very popular. A traditional IRA works the other way. You'll get the money. It works the same way as the Roth. It's a little different. You'll put the money in, and then at the end of the year when you're doing your taxes, you're going to say, all right, I put $5,000 in, and, they're going to, and when you do your 1040 tax return, it's going to deduct that amount from your income, and in essence, you will not pay taxes on that contribution. So you'll get more back at the end of the year on your taxes. Okay, but when you go to take the money out of the account, who's going to want their cut? The government's going to want their taxes, right? So really what you're looking at, Roth versus traditional, is pay now or pay later. It's really what it comes down to. And there's strategies involved in using both. And a Roth, do you pay tax on the interest? or No. Neither the principal nor the interest. Nothing. Yeah, so if you take the Roth, suppose that you make $52,000 a year, as the average American we talked about the other day, right? And you put $5,000, $6,000 is the current IRS maximum you can put into a Roth IRA. You put in $6,000 every year for 30 years, you know, you end up with a lot of money, right? You're $6,000, <laughs> and then it's grown. You don't have to pay tax on any of that when you start taking it out. And what's also nice about a Roth is that there's nothing called a required minimum distribution, an RMD. You don't have to take one. If you invest in the traditional at age 70, you, the government says, all right, we've given you a tax break long enough. Long enough. We want to start getting our tax money. So at age 70 and a half, they start saying, you must start taking money out of this thing. And I think it, the first year, it's like 3.5%. You must take it, which is fine if you don't have $20 million sitting there, right? Because now you're paying an exorbitant amount of taxes, right? So the government will get their taxes one way or the other. So if you're, gonna, if you're in a low tax bracket now, usually Roth is really good because it's going to grow tax-free. If you're in a high tax bracket now, usually the strategy is to put more into these pre-tax type of investments so that you can save taxes now and possibly pay fewer taxes when you actually retire. What if you don't take? What if you don't take what? The RMD? Um, well, the government will, they know your balances and they'll assess a nice penalty for you for not doing it. Yep. Plus, yeah, plus the tax. They're going to still get it. <laughs> Our social security number is on everything nowadays. So, 
you can invest in anything you want, right? You can invest in the bonds or you can invest in stocks with it. So it's your choice. Yeah, and you can buy the straight bond, you can buy the straight stocks, or you can buy the bond mutual fund, or you can buy the stock mutual fund. So it's kind of like an umbrella. You kind of start at the top, and then you filter your way down. Does that make sense? Can we draw it on the board? Yeah. I feel like it all has risks, so what's the difference between gambling your money and investing your money? What's the difference between gambling your money and investing your money? What do you think? Gambling is a zero-sum game. I mean, nobody's, there's no benefit coming out of that money changing. When you invest in something, especially socially responsible stock, uh, somebody's things. It's, it's productive. Things are being made. You're buying. Usually, you're buying an ownership interest in an entity that's producing something, yeah. whether a good or a service. Right. When you gamble, it's pure speculation. Right. When you're playing roulette and they spin the wheel, and they throw the, I don't know, what do you call that little thing? Ball, little dice, it's not dice, I don't know, little ball, whatever. And you put all your money on number 36, hoping for 36 to come up, and it comes up at 14, what do you get? Nothing. Nothing. And you have, yeah. It's not even speculation. Yeah. <laughs> Christians don't What's that? Oh. Christians don't go and gamble. No, yeah, most Christians don't go and gamble, right? I'm not gonna say all, but. <laughs> this is a, a question I have. Uh, a friend of mine wants to retire. He's going to retire next year. Mm -hmm. He says he can't no longer retire because of the stock market fluctuation. Uh -huh. So what's security of going to the stock market when you're, it's, it's so up and down? I mean, is it always going to go up eventually? I wish I could answer that question for you. And if I could answer that question, you would all be investing with me, right? right? Yeah. I mean, right now, everything's down. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. and every time I turn it on, it's always red. It's never green. Right. <laughs> so I would have a really hard time putting any money into this time. Into 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 the stock market. Yeah, personally. What we have to what we have to look at over the course of you know hundreds of years is this is just the the theory of investment. Okay. Is that over time, over the course of the last several hundred years, we've always seen stocks gradually performing this uptick. Right. They're always growing. Companies are always attempting to grow. Okay, they're always trying to grow. And when a growing company grows, they add value, right, to you, the shareholder. That's the concept of investing. Um, it's no different than if you started your own business, right? If you started your own business, are you speculating? Would you say that you're truly gambling if you're trying to start your own business? I wouldn't think I wouldn't I wouldn't think I was if I thought I had a really good idea to bring to the marketplace, right? That's why that's why they try to tell you you want to start investing when you're younger. Because the longer term you're in it, the more chances you're you're gonna have your retirement when you're there because the company starts here, it goes up and down as it goes, but it constantly keeps going up because the energy grows it goes up. Yep. But if you're gonna wait till now to do it, then you take some risk. No, not at all. <laughs> Your, your chances are a lot less now because the other companies are going to be going up. And you yeah. Got this now, right? So, so what you see happening in the stock market, and this is what happens, is you see these kind of things happening, right? See, so these. This is generally over the course of the last 200 years in the United States. This is what we've seen. Now, I'm not saying that you know we're right here and that we're about to see this happen. You know, that's the risk that we have with investing. But I will say this. If you don't try to invest in something that's going to grow faster than what's called inflation, 
meaning when your money is, you know, because the government's actively printing money and making your money worth less and less, right? If you can't do better than that, then you're actually losing money with your money. And you'll never, never be able to retire. So, um, when, you know, at the end of the day, you know, sometimes if you listen to NPR, mm -hmm. it says, you know, the Dow Jones Industrial today, you know, was better than that. Mm -hmm. So what do they mean? Or like the stock market today at the closing of the day was this. Okay. The question is, you know, you listen to NPR, you listen to the news, and they'll say the Dow Jones today was off 300 points. What's that? What does that mean? Well, if you looked right now, I think someone had it up. I think the Dow Jones closed at what's called like 17,700 something yesterday. So if we say it's off 300 points, it went down 300 points. So now it's worth 17,400. Yeah, 17.4. That number is only a representation. It's just an index. It's just attempting to value the stocks that are inside of that index, those 30 stocks, okay? That's the market value of those stocks brought down to a number that's not, you know, one something trillion trillion dollars, you know? Are you suggesting keeping your money in the same place? Or are you suggesting like, okay, buy low, sell high, and... The question is, would you suggest buying low? Would you always suggest, you know, buying here, selling here, buying here, selling here, right? My question to you is, how do you know when down is down? Like, when do you when do you know? How do you know that, you know, you're like, oh wow, it, it's a uh, it's down, but then maybe it's going to go down further. We don't, that's what we don't know. So then now, my feeling on that is now we're starting to speculate because now we're starting to gamble. Well, now we're taking the chance saying, we think this might happen. I think the ball might land on 36 in roulette. I wouldn't. I would but you know, I don't deal in investments all day long either. There are people out there that will think they can get that, but I don't, you know, I've- you give your money to a company that does that? Then, then you better hope that they give you really good returns because they're probably charging a really good fee to try and do it. <laughs> <laughs> you want something for that. That's why mutual funds are so nice, right? You don't have to worry about buying Walmart low because the mutual fund includes Walmart low already but it might have Chevron high because oil prices are high. Oil's low, maybe Exxon's low now. See, you're, so you're always buying the market and whatever the market in general is doing. You're taking a lot of that risk out of buying low, selling high. You're just buying the average, you know? You're just getting, you're getting your fair share. What do you have to say about um, investing low risk, high risk, moderate risk, and growth rate? Low, what do you have to say about investing low risk, moderate risk, high risk? What do you think a low risk investment would be? Lower than that. Lower risk than a bond. Bunk. Put it in your bank account, right? Is it going to go up? Not really. Is it going to go down? Better not. <laughs> if it does, we do have the government insuring it that they say they'll step in with more printed money to help you out, you know? What would be the next higher risk? Now we're moving into bonds, right? It's somebody's promise to repay you. Did General Motors have bonds out when they declared bankruptcy? 
They did. Every, almost every company in corporate America has bonds out. It's part of their finance structure. Do you think those people got repaid? Yes, because the government... The stockholders didn't. No, they filed for bankruptcy, and when they re-emerged from bankruptcy, they were a new company. The old company gets left behind to settle the debts. Most of those people still haven't been paid, and the ones that do are accepting about 15 cents on the dollar. Bonds are not risk-free. Next up, we move into stocks. Now you own the company. The nice thing about bonds, though, is if the company goes bankrupt, you might get 15 cents on the dollar. If you own the common stock, you're probably going to get nothing because there's a reason the company failed, right? After that, we move into very speculative investments, gold, silver, platinum. Who knows what direction those things are going to go? You know, if the government keeps printing money, hopefully the price of gold goes up because they tend to be an inverse relationship, but you don't know. We're running out of time. Wow, this was a big topic, right? Any other questions or can I keep moving and we can talk afterwards? Penny stocks. Penny stocks. Why do people like penny stocks? Because you can buy tons of shares for four cents a share, right? Too bad we've never heard of that company before. <laughs> or what they do. Or who's the management. Or which direction they're headed. That's why, that's why a lot of people don't get rich off penny stocks, right? But a lot of people sell programs to get rich off penny stocks. <laughs> Let's keep going here. Not tax sheltered. You could have a typical brokerage account, meaning you don't have any sort of, you know, it's just your after-tax money, you're going to invest it, it's going to grow, and when you sell it, Uncle Sam's still going to get a cut on it. A lot of people use brokerage accounts after they filled up their taxable account space and their Roth space. So what you got to do afterwards, okay? Savings accounts. Certificates of deposits, they have no tax shelter on them. Your bank account produces $30 of interest. They send you a nice little card in the mail in you know, late January that says you made $30 and you have to plunk it in your taxes and pay tax on it, right? That's not tax sheltered. Personally, I think you just operate under a kiss. Just kiss. Keep it super simple, right? They have these nice things called target date mutual funds out nowadays. You can buy them through Fidelity, Vanguard, uh, any of the big brokerage houses, Schwab offers them. You basically pick a date when you're thinking you're going to retire. They have a fund called the Target Date 2030 Fund, and it will invest in that fund, and it will gradually shift from stock allocations down to more bond allocations, down to inflation-protected securities, into cash, so that when you get close to retirement, you're not sitting like you would be in 2008. All stocks, boom, it all sells, and now you can't retire. Okay? It's shifted the risk for you over the course of your working life. If you do it with an index fund, you can get these things at 12 basis points. Super cheap. Risk profile mutual funds. These are sometimes known as life strategy funds. Here, I'll click the slides because see some people taking pictures. A lot of times, these are what your funds are called when you're like, I want to invest in a growth fund. Okay? That's just what you call it. You know, it's called a growth fund. The Janus Growth Fund. It's going to invest mostly in stocks and it's going to try and grow your money. You can invest in moderate or conservative. If you invest in conservative, it's going to be more of those bond type of funds, okay? Less risk. It's going to be more conservative. But you're not going to have the potential to earn as much. The key trick is to diversify, mix the stock and bond allocations, and get a good, um, get a good allocation going, okay? College funding for children. I know I totally told you we talk about this. I'm running out of time, but I want to move through here quickly with you. How do you do it? How do you do it? Scholarships. I'm just going to give you some ideas on here. 
You can always get scholarships. I picked up a scholarship. I didn't even apply for it in college and I got a free year. They're out there. College credit done before college. You can do this what's called through dual enrollment. You can do this even as a homeschool student. Dual enroll in the local community college. Pick up some college credits. You can do what's called AP, which is advanced placement. You can take tests at home. You can do it with AP Calculus, AP Statistics, AP College English, all these different things, and you'll get college credit before you actually go to college at a fraction of the price. Okay? I did dual enrollment when I was in school. I had a year of college done before I graduated from high school. And the school paid for it, which is nice too. Kids can pay for some of it, right? You invest, if it's for the kid, they should probably invest a little bit of it in themselves, right? I remember paying for that myself, the rest of it. A non-working spouse could return to work temporarily, right? If you have to, if all the kids are older, you'll get a job at Target. You could use investments. There's special kinds of investments. We'll talk about that in a minute. You can cash flow it, meaning maybe you make enough money in your budget that you can help write checks every month. And then, of course, there's always loans. Not really the most popular. They are there. Let's talk about using investments. You can use what's called Coverdell Education Savings Accounts. These are called ESAs. They, they work similar to like a Roth IRA. You put money into it after tax, so after you get your paycheck. You can put $2,000 a year in it and it'll grow tax-free. And then you can use the money in the account to pay for college. 529 plans, they're very, very similar to the ESA, except they have much higher, much, much higher maximums. And when you put money in, if you invest through your state's 529 plan, you can actually get a state income tax bracket. So I personally like to use the Michigan 529 plan for our kids because I'm getting a, uh, you know, I'm saving 4.25% on taxes on the amount that I contribute. So you save a little bit. It's a little bit more like an enhanced investment return built in. Savings bond, series I and EE. If you use these types of savings bonds, I wouldn't recommend it because the rates are so poor on them, but you can do these and the interest, if you cash them out for education, they'll be tax-free. So again, cash flow, you can suspend. If you want to use it with cash flow only, you can suspend other savings goals during college if you need to. Plan to pay off your home before the college years. Could you imagine if you didn't have a house payment right when your kids get to college? It makes it much easier to help write a check for $1,000 a month. Make a plan now, though. Don't wait until you get there. Private school costs are going to be $32,000 in 2015, 2016. These are big numbers. We've got to have a plan if you want to help pay for your kids to go to college. Determine what it will cost in the future and how to fund it. You might have to combine a lot of these different methods to make it work. That's what I said a couple days ago. You don't just have to have a big pile of money to do it. It might take six different methods teamed up to get there. And determine what types of colleges are options for you. Pay off the home early. We're here in it. We're in the home stretch here. How? You can pay extra each month. Just paying an extra one twelfth every month can take four years off of a 30-year mortgage. One extra payment per quarter, so making what's that 15, 13, 14, 16 payments a year basically would take 11 years off of a 30-year mortgage. You can refinance to a lower rate in a lower term. You might be able to go from a 30-year to a 15-year mortgage and your payment might not even change especially in today's interest rate environment, where you can get into a 15-year for about 2.7%. You can pay a 30-year mortgage like a 15-year mortgage. So you just, you know, you get a 30, but you pretend it's a 15, pay it like that, and you're paid off in 15 years. 
lots of flexibility, lots of ways to do these things. Or you can save it all up and pay it off all at once if you want to. If you're worried about putting extra money in the house, put it in a savings account. When you get to that, you know, that point where the savings account balance equals the mortgage balance, pay it all off in one switch. It's gone. You can always downsize too. All right? Everyone wants to live in a yurt, right? You ever heard of a yurt? Just kidding. Adventist home, 393. Do not falter, be discouraged, or turn back. Deny your taste, deny the indulgence of appetite. Save your pence and pay your debts. When you can stand forth a free man again, owing no man anything, you will have achieved a great victory. And uh, I am out of time. I'm actually going to stop here. There are... Um, other great resources, if you want to know about investing, low-cost investing, Boggleheads Guide to Investing is a great. Faith and Finance is great for providing a, a framework for it. Adventist Home, of course, is excellent for keeping everything in perspective in life, right? So um, that's it. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free. We can, we can talk about it, okay? Let's, um, oh, sorry. Let's have a quick closing word of prayer, and then I'll let everybody go. Only one minute late. We got done early the other days. It all evens out, right? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for today. We thank you for the great questions that everybody had today. And Lord, um, we pray that we would be wise stewards with investments. Lord, that our focus would always be on you and not life, a life of ease. Lord, and that uh, a huge brokerage account, a huge bank account would never be our goal, but that our goal would always be heaven. And Lord, that you would guide us every day with our finances and help us to make decisions that are wise for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.